why don't we all introduce ourselves, you brothers, and either talk about how you have or are serving in parachurch. Uh, yeah, Josh Kirkland, uh, live in Cairo, Egypt, uh, served with the International Mission Board for three and a half years before joining Reaching and Teaching uh, almost two years ago. Brian Robertson, and I am the president of Reaching and Teaching. I've worked for the org about five years now. Scott Logston, I don't serve in parachurch. You, you, you have history. I have history. So I, I served. So in, you have street cred. Okay, I served uh, in uh, IMB for twelve years on the field, and then served in the in the home office for about five years. I'm just glad that McLean is, is a church and not parachurch. Just a joke. Just a joke. Just a joke. <laughs> uh, my name is Brian Parks, and I worked for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in the U.S. for twelve years, and then I worked for on behalf of InterVarsity to start Focus here in the UAE for another 13. And now I don't work for a parachurch organization. Um, why don't we just start by defining parachurch? Let's define, Ron, you might do this for us. Define parachurch. Uh, parachurch, not anti-church, but coming alongside of, not working against the church, but really, you think paraclete, helper, we want to help the church. Great. Anybody want to add to or take away from that in any way? Great. As you think about parachurch, what, how does, when we think about it, how is it functioning in its best way? What are ways that you would say distinctively, this is what makes parachurch what we would all want it to be? I mean, I would just say when it's supporting the church doing what the church is supposed to do. Okay. That's so important the way I said that. When that's not happening. We'll flesh that out. Well, you know, when you have an organization that is helping the church become better disciplers in the church, but if that parachurch organization starts to take over discipleship, I'll do it for you, that's not good parachurch. Okay. Ron, anything? Yeah, I think when the mission of the parachurch clearly understands and communicates to its participants that the primacy of the local church and how parachurch is secondary, or you could put it into categories of essential and we're beneficial as a parachurch organization, uh, but the church is essential. Okay. Yeah, really helpful. As you guys have labored in ministry, how has your thinking changed? Have you always been in this place as you've thought about parachurch? How has your cha thinking changed? How has the Lord worked in your life in ways maybe you have thought like this always? Is, has there been shifts in your own thinking and ministry and life? And talk through that. Yes, there have been shifts. How long have you been in, in, in Egypt, Josh? I've been in Egypt for five years. Okay, where were you? How was your thinking when you went there? Yeah, so the thinking is that the parachurch will function as establishing the church. Um, that's, that's primarily a lot of the thinking that I received. Um, and now as I sit down and have conversations with Egyptians, and this happened the first couple of years, we're looking at the Bible, we're looking at principles for what, what churches are, and they're like, yes, I, I agree with you, I see that. But I don't actually see that. I've never experienced anything like that before. Um, and so 
parachurch can be helpful in pointing people in those directions, even in, even in looking at the scriptures and discipling people in that direction. But we can't be the church. We can't demonstrate the church for people. And so that's why I'm excited for the, the interns that are here. You've, ha- you've had several of them. They get to experience what the church is. Um, and so that's just really, really important. So parachurch can help, help people kind of catch a bit of the biblical vision of that. But parachurch can't do what the church does and demonstrate the one another's in the same way that the church does. Okay. Ron, would you? Yeah, I would say I haven't worked for parachurch ministry outside of being a member of Third Avenue Baptist Church. So my ecclesiological awakening uh, came in 2016, 2015. We moved down to America from Canada in 2018. I was working for Reaching and Teaching from day one as a member of Third Avenue Baptist. And so I really can't think of Well, what do you mean then by your ecclesiological awakening? Yeah, so I was in an elder rule church up in Canada, very happily uh, would work alongside parachurch ministries that were really doing church-like things and didn't think anything of it. Uh, and then as I became... Like what? Uh, campus ministry. So you, there's a lot of campus ministries all around the world that are very happy to do campus ministry where you do a whole bunch of Bible studies on campus, and that effectively replaces church in students' lives. But you would uh, agree that anything, campus ministry... You're for campus ministries and Bible studies. I think they're study. great, yeah. as, as long as they're funneling people into the local church and they understand that the primary means of discipleship in a Christian's life isn't the campus ministry, it's the local church. Okay. Uh, that was a change kind of previous to 2016 for me, post-2016. Does that, if I can, I want to press in, does that then affect the way that you're governing, does that affect the way the authority of, the authority of reaching and teaching? Yeah, so we're governed by a board of directors. Great question. Um, pardon? It was a softball. Thank Scott's you very much. Scott's making very... Uh, Good jokes. Yeah, stop it, Scott. Uh, We are governed by a board. Aaron Menikoff is one of our board members. Uh, One of the reasons it was important for me to bring on Aaron. Aaron was the first new board member uh, during my tenure. It was very important for me uh, to have Aaron come in because I knew that I could trust Aaron to be another voice around the board to help us move the board into a very kind of church-friendly. And they're all like-minded brothers. Trust them. Just having a guy like Aaron on the board, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I just know that, okay, Aaron's on the board, everything's great. But we just adopted a change at Reaching and Teaching where we're now uh, asking the IRS to recognize this as an association of churches, uh, which is interesting. There's an IRS loophole we could jump through. But part of that is to have a council of churches, which I'm conferring with. My greatest accountability, I feel, maybe Aaron will fire me for saying this, is really the churches we work with. So if I stop serving Third Avenue Baptist Church, Mount Vernon Baptist Church, all the churches we serve, if I stop serving them well, uh, I think they're going to go to another organization that can do it better and will cease to exist. Praise the Lord. I, I, think, I think they should hold us accountable most. Anything you want to add on this, Scott? No, I was, uh, my own uh, kind of start down that was just when I was in uh, university and our own university ministry, I remember we would sit around. We, we were in a Bible study, and we had a, a lot of religious activity throughout the week where we would meet with other students, and we would sit and think. We would ask one. We literally had conversations. So are we a church? Are we not a church? And uh, I, I feel like I talked to a lot of people who are still asking those questions today, a lot of people who are involved with uh, at least community uh, campus ministry where we are. Yeah, I had a 
lots of big change in my view of parachurch and church. And particularly during the 12 years of working for InterVarsity, and even prior when I was a student, I think I saw, there was, I, I intuitively knew that the church was really important and I shouldn't leave it out or we shouldn't, we should be a part of church. But I saw the parachurch and the church as being very much equal. Um, and I think I thought, when I thought about church, I thought very much in, in the a category of universal church. So we're a part of the universal church. So yeah, we're, we're, we're a part of the church. Um, so that, that changed, though, when I moved here to Dubai. And there was a need to reform ECCD. And uh, that's when, actually, we began to tap into Nine Marks materials. And, and I began to learn, and, you know, my view of the local church just swelled. Uh, and I began to understand it much more clearly as essential versus beneficial. What freedoms does the parachurch have that the church does not have? What freedoms, in what ways is, does the parachurch have some freedoms that the, that the church does not have? I'm trying to give you time to think through that. Any initial thoughts, Scott? Just initially, I think the, the parachurch can, doesn't have the same charter. Amen that a church has. So it can be very limited, it can be broader, uh, and so for that reason, it's not, it's not held to that higher standard. So there's, there can be, I mean, there's the, the must-dos of the church and the must-dos of the parachurch can, should be different, can be different, will be different. Yes. Yeah. Other thoughts? I think the parachurch can focus on some of those good things that Christians... Uh, are supposed to do or can do that the church can also perhaps do but is in perhaps grave danger of getting off mission mission creep uh, and then in that way the parachurch does serve the church it's kind of like let us let us do these things let us dig wells and you help us come and preach the gospel to the to the village after we do this for Wonderful. example yeah really well said Josh anything right um uh, you, you made me think of uh, this. A healthy parachurch ministry does not pressure the church to act like a church or does not pressure the church to ignore secondary doctrine. Okay? So that I, I didn't say that very well. A parachurch is free to ignore some secondary doctrine. The church is not free to ignore secondary doctrine. Going to mission creep, how does a parachurch experience mission creep? How does a parachurch organization? Oh goodness! So we thought about the church going off mission. Yeah. How's the parachurch protected from going off mission creep? How does a parachurch get protected? How does a parachurch not experience mission creep? Yeah, I think by constantly putting in front of it that its mission is to serve the church. Um, for me, the most important relationships in my life are with church leaders, not with other parachurch org leaders. Um, so the interaction I have with my elders at Third Avenue Baptist Church every other Wednesday night is a constant course correction for me to remember the local church in my ministry at a parachurch. Conversations with pastors that we serve consistently helps protect us from missions creep. If I cut those relationships out of my life, if, I, if I'm not a dedicated member of my own local church, uh, I think reaching and teaching will start to drift pretty quick. 
crazy enough, the with the whole ecumenical movement, I think parachurch, because it's not limited the way the church is, it becomes very attractive for a lot of ministry out in the world. And and then it becomes this vicious cycle where it doesn't recognize the boundaries that it should not cross in terms of church. It does it with other things like parachurch organizations. We don't we don't have uh, conversations. We're not going to have a panel about them threatening to become governments, right? They're not going to change into a gov become a, a, a third world government kind of thing. But they do become very church. They start taking away things that the church should be doing. And it becomes this vicious cycle. Yeah, I think, obviously, there'd be well-known broad coalitions that are free to ignore secondary doctrine that can become all-encompassing and can really affect the life of the church, uh, for good or bad. Uh, can I give you some examples? Yeah, yeah. So I got a call from a brother in Southeast Asia who's with another organization, and he was just distraught that another organization had decided to move 50 units from one country to another without consulting either the local church on the ground or the sending churches of those individuals. That's mission creep right there. That's you forgetting exactly what your role is. Uh, I think we're... It's so discouraging to the local churches. Huge. John Pentecost, who many of us know, uh, told me a story over the summer where an agency came in. Uh, Kyler, you would be able to know this more, but he had been mentoring a couple, going through some counseling issues with a couple, week in, week out, week in, week out, and then they showed up at his front door one day. And they're like, hey, our agency's calling us back because of this issue that you've been dealing with. John Pentecost never got a call from that agency asking, hey, how are they doing? Maybe, maybe that family was best served by staying a member of Smyrna International uh, Protestant Church rather than going back. And it, that's an agency doing something that local churches should be doing. Yeah, I mean, we, we experienced some of that in our, our previous org. Just as we... Uh, we're looking, we were on a team, the fit wasn't, wasn't quite right, and so we're, we're calling back to our sending church and states, and they're being kind of stonewalled out of the conversation. Um, and so we have our sending church in the states saying, hey, we want you to, to fit into this role right here. This actually fits your gifting, your calling. This is going to support the local church on the ground. We've even got city leaders that are like, yes, this is actually where Josh and his wife need to serve. But because it didn't quite fit the parachurch model, uh, that was that was being put forward. We were we were stonewalled out of that, and so uh, I'm thankful for reaching a teaching that comes and says, "We're going to let your local church give a lot of that direction and, and help guide you in those conversations." So. I think that uh, mission creep happens for parachurches when they don't verbalize the essential nature of the church regularly and thoroughly in the context and in the course of their, their ministry. Because, it, you know, we talk about a gospel assumed is oftentimes then a gospel lost. And in some ways it works the same way for a parachurch ministry. If they don't, if they don't say regularly to one another, no, the church is essential. The church is who we're wanting to serve. You know, if they just assume that and then talk about all the exciting other good things they're doing, then, yeah, it, the the people involved in it are gonna are gonna pretty soon forget about. You want the flavor, the culture of that parachurch. It'd be we love the church. That's we right. We protect the church. That's We're right. For the church. Yeah. We're always thinking about and directly tying our work to the church, and it just be deep in the DNA. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We're gonna say something, Scott. Yeah, just one thing on that, and 
sometimes the parachurch should even protect the church from the church. Talk about so that. So if a church then says, yeah, we, we actually would prefer if you did this for us instead of us. That's not a good thing either. And so just to say, it's not always the parachurch trying to be the, the mean monster on the street. It's sometimes that the, the, the church itself loses its own understanding of its mission, which is why the, the topic is so important for us today as pastors. If we lose that, then we're going to let parachurch organizations become and act like what we should be doing. Yeah, and I think sometimes the parachurch organizations that perhaps there's frustration with or that, you know, have, have, gone, have done that because the church has been so weak uh, in her role and what she's called to do. One thing that's kind of important, I think, is that when you, is to ask a parachurch organization, what do they think is the mission of the church? Because if they have an underlying assumption, uh, let's say, of the broad view that Greg mentioned, then that's, that ethos and those ideas are going are to be communicated to the people participating in that parachurch ministry. And they're gonna start expecting that of their local church. And that, that could be really, that's gonna to lead to a lot of conflict and, and discouragement, I think. Let's talk about, um, we, we, we've done some conversation, I'll do a little bit more on it, about when, uh, when the parachurch and the church are together. Let's talk about when someone is sent out by the church, God willing, they're sent out by the church. They go through the parachurch, parachurch organizations come alongside the church, and they're going somewhere where there is no church. No church, okay? How are they relating to the church? How are they relating to the church? Uh, what's that ideally look like? This, well, the sending church, yeah. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. Give an ideal biblical uh, vision for what that looks like. Yeah, I think uh, often you're looking at a team. So we, we personally would never facilitate uh, one couple or one individual going to plant a church. All right, so own. you would start. It wouldn't be Lone Rangers. It would you not would be Lone Rangers. Group. It would why, be why would you do that, Ryan? Uh, accountability on the field, uh, understanding the diversity of gifting. Uh, we're, not, we're not in the, the early days of the local church anymore, uh, praise the Lord. So we've got local churches all over the world that we can cooperate with together. So we'll only facilitate a team because of that. Uh, and I'm very... Uh, quick to tell them that you're going to start doing local church things on the ground, uh, you should covenant together as early as possible as a local church. So, uh, so are you a, comfortable sending, are you, you're sending a team, but you want them to self-consciously become a church? That's right. That's right. Any disagreement with that? I can tell you where people disagree with it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I've had these conversations. Trying a lot. to make a panel. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, if we were to have uh, a friend kind of right beside yeah, us, please disagree yeah, with yeah. him. <laughs> yeah. This is what happens when you have a small conference. We don't get disagreements like this. Uh, so I've heard. Uh, well, what about the what about the indigenous group that you're planning that church amongst? If you're going to be meeting in English because that's the the language of the group, that's going to be a very English type of church, as it covenants together and someone gets baptized into membership and I said well just change the language like if you're laboring to learn language in that people group and you've got their culture nailed down it can look like a very indigenous church if you're a humble missionary and are willing to accommodate that brother or sister that is baptized in membership in that church for me it's an exercising of the keys of the kingdom when you're baptizing somebody into membership and when you've got two or three gathered together as a team you are doing church stuff it's not this apostolic stuff that we hear about so often. What do you mean change the language? 
So if I'm in an unreached language group in Southeast Asia in Indonesia, and we have labored hard to learn that tribal language, and the very first Christian comes, uh, and, and they're going to be baptized into membership in our local church, we're going to start gathering together in that tribal language. What if my kids don't speak that language? Then, uh, then you know what? You need to do the hard work of discipling your children. Uh, but if, if they're not Christians, they're not members of that church. What if I have teammates that haven't learned the language? Uh, then you were pretty sloppy in team formation. <laughs> Let's keep this going. <laughs> they just arrived in the field. Uh, we wouldn't actually put them on that team. We, we, would, we would try and keep that team kind of going through language learning. So you're valuing language ac- acquisition before the team goes yeah. and settles. Yeah. So that you can do... Has ever something whatever happened? Like a team covenanting together and switching language? Yeah. Yeah. Our friends did it amongst the Moy people group in, in Indonesia. Uh, I know if people have done it. Now, I don't know if they covenant together as a local church, but like the conversations we're having in this room, like the stuff that this earlier panel was saying, I was saying to someone beside me, this is anathema in, in the missions community. For, for us to be prioritizing ecclesiology and missiology, I don't think it's been done for over 100 years. And so it hasn't happened, to my knowledge, yet in that way. But we've got five teams with us right now that are, uh, are going to, Lord willing, do that. Yeah, so, what, I mean, it's, it's, this is a very complex, it's, it's very complex, very complicated kind of thing. But gone are the days when David Livingstone has to... Yeah, I want the Judsons and the Swin- Yeah, Swinburne where they have the, to whack, yeah. you know, hack from one coast of Africa to the other. In, in this day and age where you can, you can arrive anywhere on the, on the planet in, in 24 hours or less, it, I do think that you can take community with you and you should uh and i i would recommend covenanting with your team um not to become a team and not just but to become a church and uh one thing that we did was we did receive over the years that we were there we received uh teammates you know in the middle of you know we were our entire time there so six years in we get a new uh teammate and so what we would do is we would uh, do everything we could to worship with them, so we don't have like a First Corinthians fourteen kind of situation where you're 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 worshiping in a language that's unintelligible to you, but you're being fed uh, in we did English and in the local language as well with the local brothers. Um, but it creates a very complex situation. But we were just determined we were going to do it. Josh, what did this look like for you when you show up in Cairo? Well, I was just going to say real okay. quick just added to this conversation is that there are international churches in a lot of places. Well, we're going to get to that. Okay. I'm trying to really go where there's not okay. anything first. Yeah. But there, but there may be where those places are, there may be a place for them to learn language before they, before they even move in. Yeah. So as they're learning language, they may be able to covenant together. So just take Egypt, for example, there are, there are places that I know people want to go in the Sinai Peninsula and up on the North coast where there are no churches but they could come to Cairo and learn the local trade language first, build a team that could then move in to a place like that. So you're all committed to, well, let me ask, are you all committed to it, generally speaking, should be a team? There should be a group that goes. No one's kind of going alone. We're not, even though we read missionary biographies where folks went alone. Uh, Missionary biographies are not infallible. I would, yeah, great, okay, yeah. I think, it's, I think it's fine to press back. I think it's fine to read of an Adoniram Judson, be moved and think, man, that was hard on his wives, you know? Yeah. Well, 
you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, even William Carey, so he gets there, he's there eight years, and then others move in, and they have the Sarum Four Compact, yeah. which is, you know, a, a commitment for them to live together in, in community in some ways. You, of course you can, Andy. Let's think then, of anything else on, you're, you're, you've got a team, you're going somewhere, there's no church. Anything else you'd want to say about that? Scott just fired me from the panel so that Andy can take my spot. So. <laughs> Andy, just chime in whenever you... you. <laughs> Somebody get him a mic. Um, okay, then let's think about... So I think uh, a number of guys here are in international churches, and one of the common issues has been, and will continue to be, a missionary goes to a place, there's an international church, international church doing good gospel work, seeing conversions but maybe isn't seeing, or maybe is seeing, nationals, indigenous peoples convert. And the missionaries come for the national people, an unreached people group. What is that relationship? How did you guys think through that relationship, and have you changed in your thinking in any way on that relationship? Just, I want to clear up one thing on that. Uh, There's this trend uh, among missiologists to, like, once you find one good thing, it's like, Everyone should do that, everywhere, right? So does anybody here think that, like, everyone should join an international church or start an international church everywhere? Like, it's the only thing that we should be doing in Does anyone think that? Raise your hand. Trey, we are so glad you're on board. I knew uh, Trey would. With that, (laughs) it's only Trey. Thank you, Trey. Anyone else? So that's a no. So I just think it's helpful to think of it as like part of a balanced breakfast, you know. Absolutely. We want to say, yeah, praise God for international churches. It's not the only thing. Well, there's a lot of places where there aren't a lot of, of foreigners Absolutely. living there. Yeah. Do you have a question? Okay. okay. <laughs> um, then let's think about that relationship. How do you yeah. want to think through that relationship? Yeah, I think... I think the reality is, brothers, in this room we have a lot of healthy international churches that are represented. The reality is, in most places around the world, these churches are not healthy. They are actually the opposite of healthy. And so I think we just need to acknowledge that. Even as we are proponents for healthy English-speaking international churches, uh, we need to make sure that we're aware that people hear international church and their mind goes to something. Uh, I think it's very important for those of us that are proponents to also help educate sending churches about English-speaking international churches. So that's a really important part of this equation because, again, parachurch ministry has a lot of opinions about international church. And, and for good reason, if, if it's bad. For the good reason. not been Absolutely. Great. Absolutely. Or don't understand what Scott just said, that we don't all think that this is perfect for everyone everywhere. We need to be better at, at kind of putting that out there. But I do think that we need to facilitate as many relationships as we can with parachurch ministry organizations and with sending churches so that they understand kind of how our ecclesiology is driving our missiology in these conversations. They need to understand how we value church membership and the role of the local church on the field so that that can facilitate conversation. Uh, Because in the absence of conversation, there's just a lot of misconceptions. So I think that's one of the first things we need to do is just have really good conversations about these things. Yeah, yeah, we have some members in, in our church that were originally covenanted together as a small little house church uh, in another part of the city, a really hard part of the city. Um, because they were doing that and running a business and 
trying to keep up with all of their parachurch organizations, their team was suffering and struggling. And so being able to add them into our church relieved a lot of pressure. And so now they're free to pursue evangelism in, in new ways that they weren't before because they're so concerned about shepherding and eldering those that are in this little tiny congregation of theirs that now they know there are elders that, that care about them and that love them and are shepherding them. So now I can, I can be your team leader. I can, I can help give some direction to how we're doing evangelism, but I don't have to be your pastor and your boss in our business that we're, we're sharing together. And that's just been incredibly freeing for them and has given them renewed vigor and renewed energy for evangelism. And they're doubling down on that. And they're able to do that more effectively. Yeah, I'm so thankful for the, the, those in our own church who are intentionally laboring to see the gospel go to Gulf Arabs and want to do that, that we can feed them the word. Hopefully they are benefiting and being built up in their own soul. And they're making the gospel known clearly to those who, who live here. And uh, we pray the Lord gives life. And I think it's a win-win. Because if, if it's working well, they're pulling our people right. toward this kind of uh, gospel proclamation, and they're being fed and strengthened, and the church is being yeah, built and that's up. A, that's but that's not right. possible. But when we have that opportunity, what an opportunity. Yeah, and, and they are incredible evangelists. And so when there's people in our congregation that need to learn what evangelism looks like, it's like, go spend some time with these brothers. Like, look at what they're doing. They're doing this really, really effectively, and they're doing it as faithful members of this church. Can I ask you guys a question? It has something to do with this. Your pastors of international churches, your people's identity, is it first that parachurch ministry organization or is it their membership in your local church? I'd be curious how they would think through that. Yeah, I'd, that'd be something I'd love to have conversations with uh, about. Just, to, just as I, would, I think where we were helped yesterday really well was that Aaron was, your identity, and, and Andy made this clear, is not pastor. It's Christian, right? That we are sheep. We're, we're sheep first and foremost. I would be so concerned for the missionary whose primary identity is missionary. That is crushing. I want to be in Christ, and that's where I'm resting. It, and that's where I'm seeing myself. And that's what I do. And I may not do that always. Yeah. We only have focus, folks, plus one couple that's a part of uh, a larger team in the Dubai, Sharjah area. And I do think they see themselves primarily as, uh, as members of the local church, which is, which is wonderful. At the same time, they're doing really fruitful ministry outside the church. And even the one couple that's not a part of Focus uh, are just, I think, a tremendous example. Right now, uh, the husband is leading a course on evangelism and taking our members out to do contact evangelism in Dubai, which is fantastic. And there's 30 of our church members, and we have 120 church members total, so there's a quarter of our church members that are being taught by this master evangelist. Um, It's just tremendous, so yeah, it can work. The question was, use the microphone so I can hear. The question was, Josh, uh, do the members of your church see them first as members of your church or as, as team members of the parachurch ministry in which they're working? I guess also you're asking, where's the authority coming from? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Are you asking that? I think that's a secondary question. So the team had to have a conversation, and they said, we're, we're going to dissolve our, our house church. Everyone is free to choose their identity and how you're going to pursue church. Now, they, the team leader said, we're, we're joining this church over here where uh, Emmanuel, and they said, that's, that's, that's our aim. And their identity is that way. And 
all of the members of that team, save one who has been on the state side, have joined our church, and that would be their primary identity. Yeah. And said, or join a national church that speaks the language of the city. So I would say, if, if at all possible, we should try and live out Ephesians 2, uh, where there's unity and diversity and the walls of hostility that oftentimes people are arguing we should continue to keep those up and have homogenous churches. I would say as, as much as we can, we need to break those down. So Pakistani uh, and Indian brothers and sisters should be worshiping together. Israeli and Palestinian brothers should be worshiping together. Uh, Irish and Northern Irish should be wor- worshiping together. And so I would be very careful uh, unless it's absolutely necessary for security reasons or language reasons to split to split those up. Yeah, I would certainly be concerned. If it, I mean, as we would in any context where it's just one ethnic or national group, we want to see those barriers broken down in the gospel. I, I, any other uh, any other question about this that we're not hitting? Marwan, Zambia, Kenya. Marwan, I'm so glad you said that. that uh, I, I was thinking of one international, uh, one English-speaking church that I know of that we might call it an international church, but they specifically say we do not want to be known as an international church because that gives a, has a certain connotation with it. That we so we want to be called an English-speaking church for for, for that and and other reasons as well. Yeah, there's ben. been some good information on out there writing saying let's drop the word international when we can and just be the church. When, when would you recommend, uh, when should ascending church have a vision that our people, they have a choice in Lebanon. You could go to Marwan's church, which would be a great place, or there's a lot of choices. There are other Lebanese, Arabic-speaking churches that they could also join. And when would you make the choice about, well, because of your vision and mission, you guys should join the language of the national people, that church, rather than the international church? Yeah, that's a great question. We dealt with this. We've got a team right now in Vietnam who are going to do an unreached language group church plant. They are now members of an English-speaking church. That church is going to be planting a Vietnamese-speaking church. Uh, they will go and be members of that Vietnamese-speaking church when they've got a sufficient language to be able to one another well in that language. So, And then those two churches will work together with all of these sending churches in America. They're all going to cooperate together to see an unreached language group ultimately planted in the jungles of Vietnam. So for us, it's a language. So if you can one another well... Uh, we would actually encourage most of our workers to get out of English-speaking churches and into national language churches whenever they can. As I think about that, and I, I think that a, a missionary could easily go to a place where there is a strong national, I'm not sorry, a national church that is very poor in health. And I would want to weigh how much influence you could have. If you're just going to be there suffering along and you're not able to build that up, they might be served by doing something else. Being, if, if there's another, the health of the national and, church. And speaking to that, identifying the health of the national church may be extremely difficult for a very long time. That's certainly the truth uh, in, in Cairo, as I'm still laboring to understand the levels of health in the churches that are there. Uh, time reveals a lot of things. And so I know people that are doing that. They have joined some of these churches, and they've been in them for, for years now, and they're just starting to realize the problems and they don't have the, the ability to address and speak into that. And, and it's an, it, it can become a matter of wisdom, and I would, be, I would feel so protected having pastors, elders walking through that with me as I make those decisions. I'm sure it's nobody in this room, but I'll just say that uh, there are many missionaries who do not know how to evaluate the health of churches. Don't assume that they know. Don't assume that they can just, when you ask them, hey, is that a good church? Oh, yeah. 
Don't assume you're that you're saying that as a long time. You've been a long time missionary who learned language and culture. Um, I don't mean me, of course. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, has there been growth in your life in that way? Absolutely, uh, and and still growing yeah, in absolutely. that as well. Uh, I mean, yeah. And so we, so this is something that we actually try to teach the the folks who are going to our prospective missionaries at our church. We try to teach them what are some things that you look for. You know. Do they even have a statement of faith? How does that match the church that you came from? That's like kind of like our minimum kind of test. Does it even match? Because I talk to longtime missionaries now from our church. Talk to them. You know, is that a good church? And they say yes. And I do a little digging, and I'm like, that's a that's not a great church. Yeah, and I want, but I want to make that just you you can vary in degrees of health, but a church is either true or false. So we want to we want to make the, we want to have gears for these distinctions. Weak churches can be very true churches, and just need to grow in health, and we need wisdom. Maybe one last, Anand, do you want to? You, Heath, why don't you go ahead? And we're going to have to break for lunch here soon. Just use the microphone. Yeah, question for Scott to actually, I think this would be an important question for Scott to actually open up a little bit more. How does a church in the United States? How does parachurch organizations help those who are going to the field better understand in which? which church they might join in, how do they connect with local church pastors to be able to actually create that partnership? What's the role in the parachurch? How does the sending church do that well? So what are those kind of questions? What are those things that you're training people? in? that's a big question. I'm sorry. How do we help, how do we help folks understand if it's a, if it's a good church? But you also asked about coming alongside a national church. I'm not a. I'm not part of a, an agency, but I would think it would be really helpful if there were some pastor missionary partnerships that would write some really good material about how that's worked well, and and describe it, um, so that it could teach both sides. I mean, it, my my quick answer at the high level is just we've got to. One, understand the church well and teach it well so that we can then, you know, have ways to compare and gauge health, uh, whether it's through uh, nine marks of a healthy church, things that you're looking for in specific contexts, what, what, what are the gauges there, things to look for. Um, uh, Twelve traits out of IMB, you know, those kinds of things. Whatever it is, you've got to have some ways, some gauges of, of, of things to look at teach those to missionaries and then start evaluating and then it's not a perfect science so you've got to keep going back and back and forth and, and evaluating and your evaluations scott and john fulmer are working on a book called church-centered missions when will that be, book be available <laughs> uh, ask john at some point in this present age there will be a book on church-centered missions i think some of it is resourcing and some of it is relationships so resourcing uh, we cannot we cannot underestimate how little the American church is actually thinking about church in the field. And so I think a lot of it is educating them, hey, how you think about the local church in America should also influence the way you think about the local church around the world. Uh, and then relationships are just going to take a ton of time and a lot of energy. And I think parachurch organizations like mine have to believe firmly in investing the majority of our time, majority of my time, in building those relationships. And I think resourcing relationships will help. That's absolutely right. Uh, not all the time, not all the time, but 
I've even been in a room that Scott has been teaching in, having their missionaries join churches overseas. And I've seen smoke coming out of missions pastors' ears going, wait, they're not going to be a member of our church here in Tennessee? It's like, yeah, they're going to be a member church overseas. They cannot get their head around it. So we're trying to actually encourage as many churches as we can to get to weekenders, to, to read really good books on the church, even as they're sending. Yeah, and I'll just say on that, like, not all missionaries are qualified to do. Well, but, but, but even within that, it's not just yes or no. It's that yes, but they're qualified to this level. I would not, so, and, and we just kind of think, look, the, the church has these built-in mechanisms to qualify deacons, ministers, and then, and then elders. And so we kind of use those in our church. We're like, well, first members, then deacons, then elders. So we use those. Like, if I don't know, if, if they're not even a member of our church, I don't know much about them, and we don't have church processes, you know, just as an example. So we think, like, if you're, if you're qualified to a deacon level, I'm not going to send you to start a church in, you know, where Heath is. Even with the, I mean, unless you're on a team with somebody like Heath, uh, who we would qualify to an elder level. Does that make sense? So, so in this evaluation of, of churches, like, I'm not going to send somebody who's not qualified to go someplace and start evaluating churches. I'm going to send them someplace where we have already evaluated with good partners and resources as a church with folks that we trust on the ground and who know that place. We're going to send them to that place to come under that church. And I, and I want to say from this end, it, it has been, well, it's happened some, but it has been such an encouragement to me when someone sends someone here that that church contacts me and talks to me, even about the spiritual state of this person, how they are, whether they're coming in whatever form, if they're just coming to get a job or if they're coming to work. That, I love that partnership, and it tells me that that person's pastoring well in their church. We do need to wrap up um, because it's, it's lunchtime. Any last comment or question that you're burning? Or not question, but comment. It's clear that these issues require wisdom, and we need to be growing in wisdom because sometimes a lot of these questions require particular wisdom in that, the application of truth to that context.